0: Now we're going to start with this evening's subject, okay? Um, Our subject is sin and grace, and you have the notes. And um, there's a lot of misunderstandings about this, and here's what I'm hoping, is that I don't go too fast, we can have questions at the end, and that I hope that I can make all of this clear, because especially with the question of sin, there's huge misunderstandings. Let's try to clear them up, okay? So sin, what you're going to find that I do this evening is I make a lot of distinctions, a lot of distinctions. Um, So let's begin with our first distinction. There's two big kinds of sin. Original sin and personal sin, which I call actual sin. Who's ever heard of original sin? Raise your hand. Everybody know what original sin is? Okay, great. Let's begin with original sin, okay? First thing we need to understand about original sin is that it's a misnomer. It's not something that you did. Original sin is a condition that you inherit. Okay? It's a privation of God's grace. Now, in baptism, you're rescued from original sin, you're given God's grace, and you still carry the effects of original sin. Wouldn't it be great if you could be forgiven from original sin and also all the effects of original sin taken away? But that's not what happens. In baptism, you're forgiven of... And we'll talk about this more when we talk about the baptism class... But please understand, original sin isn't something that you did. However, once upon a time, was there or was there not a first ever sin? Yes or no? That once upon a time, there really was an original sin. Um, So yes, it did happen. Uh, There once was a free-willed disobedience to God. Now, we hear that's told in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. Everybody knows the Adam and Eve story. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not going to get into the historicity of the Adam and Eve story. That's really not within the scope of this evening's talk. But I do want to tell you this. Everything that we need to know about the original sin, um, about the way God intended us to be, it's all contained within that story. There's so much truth in the Adam and Eve story. Consider This is what it all began as, a dialogue with evil, a temptation, and finally a free choice to disobey God, and that choice was a collusion of both man and woman. So look at these little elements one by one. First of all, the original sin was a dialogue with evil. Remember the story? The serpent says, um, uh, why don't you try some of the forbidden fruit? By the way, what was the fruit in the Bible? Everybody says it was an apple. Did you realize that the Bible never calls it an apple? This is just an FYI. It only says the fruit of the tree, the fruit of the knowledge. It never says it's an apple. Do you know why we call it an apple just for fun? It's because of Latin. The Latin word for apple is mala. The Latin word for evil is mala. So when they had to depict a fruit from the tree, they depicted an apple. And ever since then, everyone thought it was an apple. But search the Bible. You'll find it just described as a fruit. Okay. Um, so the evil spirit said, did God really say that you, that fruit would cause you death? He lied to you. Oh, that fruit, once you eat it, you'll be the same as him. God's trying to hold you back. God wants to keep you down, but listen to me. Trust me. Do what I say. Go ahead and eat that fruit. And then there was a test. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? Do you trust God or do you trust the serpent? So the woman looked at the fruit and she thought to herself, God, it looks it looks good. Gosh, that sure does sound right. Maybe God is trying to hold me back. gumbit, I'm going to eat the fruit. And then look what happened. Who showed up? Adam showed up. Did the serpent have a dialogue with Adam? No. What happened? Eve just said, here, eat this. And he goes, okay. (laughs) And he eats the fruit. Now, tell me if this isn't true. When a woman has real strong virtue, um, uh, uh, she challenges a man to be as good as she is. But if a woman doesn't have real strong virtue, he'll go down as low as as she'll let him go. It's all in the Adam and Eve story. But there's a collusion between the two. The entire human race fell. And very often you'll see this. People will say no to God because they'll say yes to the man or to the woman. Very often I'll see this. Well, I know it's a sin, but I love her, so we're going to go commit this sin. Very, very often you'll, you'll find that to be the case. It's all in the Adam and Eve story. But this, is, this was the original sin. Somewhere along the line, there was a dialogue with evil, a temptation, and a free choice to disobey God. Okay, that original sin caused damage. That original sin caused a rupture in the relationship we were supposed to have with God. We were created to be in harmony with God. And isn't it true that now we're skeptical of God? I used to teach high school. I used to teach religion and history. Guess which one was easier to teach? History. Much easier to teach. I can tell them all about World War One, and they don't think that I'm being, they, they don't look at me with, with an askance eye. They don't, think, they, don't, they don't look skeptical at me. But when I try to teach them about religion, how do you know? Who says? Skepticism. And that's a consequence of original sin. We used to just trust God from the depths of our heart, just like a tiny little child trusts his father. But not afterwards. Another thing is uh, interesting. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God. And we'll get back to that later. But isn't it interesting? They realized something was wrong and they tried to hide from God, and God immediately sought them out. Where'd you go? Where'd you go? And that also plays out all throughout history, and we'll get to that in a second, too. But this is the point that I want to make about original sin it had consequences. And here's another vocabulary term for you we call those consequences concupiscence. Who's ever heard the word concupiscence before? Brand new word, okay? It's a theology talk for the consequences of original sin. Why is it easier to eat drive through than it is to eat a salad? Concupiscence. Why is it easier to sleep in than to get up on time? Concupiscence. Why is it easier to tell a lie than to tell the truth, for the most part? Concupiscence. Why is it easier to do wrong than it is to do right? Concupiscence. We're misordered. In fact, because of original sin, it's been said... That original sin is the one doctrine of our faith you don't need any faith to believe. I hope that makes sense, but allow me just to clarify. If a group of space aliens could come down to planet Earth and observe, just watch us, would they not very quickly conclude that we are screwed up? They say, Something's wrong with this creature. Something's wrong with these people. That's what I mean when I say, You don't need any faith to believe in original sin. All you have to do is open your eyes and recognize that we're out of whack. Our desires are out of whack. We're selfish when we shouldn't be. All kinds of things. What do we call all those consequences of original sin? We call them... Everybody wants together with me now. We call them concupiscence. That's your new vocabulary word for the evening. We call it concupiscence, the consequences of original sin. Um, Now, let me address one thing about original sin, and I realize I'm going fast here, but I hope this... Everybody with me so far? Okay, great. Have you ever stopped to think that it's not fair original sin. Did you disobey God and eat the apple? No. Have you ever thought that it's not fair? I mean, Adam and Eve, they didn't have to work. They had all kinds of infused knowledge. They didn't have to go to school. They didn't get sick. They didn't die. They didn't stub their toes and say, ouch. I mean, they they, they were created in a perfect world, a garden of paradise, but you weren't. I don't know. Maybe this is the kind of thing that If you think about it, um, you you love theology or maybe you're going to become a priest, right? But I think about these things. Not fair, not fair. It's true. It's not fair. You didn't do wrong. You just inherited the consequences. But you always have to consider that as human beings, what we do affects other people, whether we like it or not, for the good or for the bad. If somebody does evil, don't we all pay a price? Mm -hmm. If there's a thief on the loose, don't we all lock our doors? You didn't do anything wrong, but you're suddenly locking your door. If there's a terrorist on the loose, aren't we all suddenly going through longer security lines? You didn't blow up an airplane, but now you have to act like... So whenever we do wrong, we bring each other down. The good news is whenever we do right, we bring each other up. Um, In my swim club when I was a kid, one of the former swim club members went on to win a gold medal in the Olympic Games. And they put up signs, hey, congratulations. Um, Dolan was his name. Wins gold for the USA, gold medal for the USA. And, and And he used to swim for our club. Well, I didn't win a gold medal, but suddenly I'm swaggering about like proud like a peacock. Because what he did lifted me up, right? When we do good, we lift each other up. When we do bad, we tear each other down. Here's a perfect lived example. I traced my ancestry back, 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 and I discovered that I had an ancestor who was on the Mayflower. Suddenly I was, oh boy, I was on the Mayflower. But then I traced my ancestry back, 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 and I realized I had ancestors who owned slaves. Suddenly I was all of shame, right? Did I own slaves? No, Did I? But, but I pay the price for it. Did I? Was I on the Mayflower? No, but I benefit from it. We, we pull each other up, we tear each other down. So no, it wasn't fair. But then again, neither was the redemption fair. Where's the crucifix in here? You didn't have to hang on a cross. He did. But did you get the benefit from it? Mm -hmm. Nobody ever says, that's not fair. See how that works? Okay. (laughs) So that's original sin real briefly. And that's just an overview. Now we're going to talk about what most people consider sin, which is what I call personal sin or actual sin. Now here's the most important thing to understand about sin. Sin is always a free choice. It's never an accident You'd be amazed if you could sit and hear confessions like the priest does, how many people come along and tell you what they did by accident and have to tell them, it's not a sin. You can't sin by accident. People think that their temptations are sins. People think that because they have bad feelings that they have sin. Well, you know, my cousin, whatever, my uncle, um, he makes me mad and I walk around feeling bad all day long. And so I'm really sorry for that. A sin is a free choice. Please understand that. A temptation is not a choice. No more choice than the weather. An accident, clearly not a choice. And a feeling, not a choice. So what's a sin? A free choice, thought, word, or action in disobedience to God's will. It could be something you do or something you omit. That's what a sin is. Okay? You think about our legal system. It's a great parallel. Do we punish people for accidents? No. Um, we only punish people for things that they do on purpose. And you can even be punished for things you planned to do on purpose but didn't actually carry out, right? Conspiracy to commit murder, it's a crime. Why? Because your will was bad. It's the exact same thing with sin. It's all about what you choose, okay? So can a thought be a free choice? Yes. We all know what it's like to have thoughts come into our minds that float around for a while and we ask ourselves, why am I thinking that? And then you shoo the thought away. Everybody knows what that's like. But we also all know what it's like to have a thought come into your mind, dance around for a while, and you say, ooh, I like that thought. And you start thinking about it, right? Could be a good thought, could be a bad thought, but you make a choice to think about it. Um, Once upon a time, I was bullied as a kid and... You know, the thought came back to my mind is what I would do with those guys now. You know, oh man, what I would do with those guys now. It's a temptation. But when I choose to think about what I would do to those kids and mull over it in detail, that's when it becomes a choice. A sin has to be a choice. So can a thought be a a choice? A thought can be a sin. Everybody knows that a word can be a choice. Can a word be an accident? I think yes. Haven't you ever misspoken and thought to yourself, wait a minute, I didn't really mean it that way. But it has to be a free choice for it to be a sin. All right? And everybody knows that an action um, uh, it can be a free choice. So a sin is a free choice. Please understand that. If you understand that backwards and forwards, you're ahead of at least half the people who go to confession on a regular basis, believe me. Okay? It can also be something that you should have done but didn't do. That's what we call a sin of omission. Who's ever heard of a sin of omission before? Well, now you have. Okay. Um, if I should have, here's an easy example for you. I just got a hospital call about an hour and a half ago. Man's dying, you've got to hurry, you know, quick, quick, come on over, and you're going to give him the sacraments. Suppose I would thought, I don't feel like it. Did I do anything wrong? It's rather what I didn't do that was wrong, correct? It's what I didn't do that was wrong. That's what we call a sin of omission. So you can sin by what you should have done but didn't do. But it's always a free choice. choice. Okay, make sense? All right. Now, um, here's a point that I'll get to really in a moment, but let me just introduce it now. It harms us. It changes us. Sin actually deforms your soul. You're made in God's image, and we'll get to that in a second too. But when you sin, that image gets darkened, deformed. You become a creature not of God's making, but of your own making, which is a rather frightening thought. But consider this. Here's what. Uh, here, here's one other thing. People think that sin is breaking a rule. People think that God has his little rules, and God's in heaven, uh, and God can make up any rules he wants, and God kind of arbitrarily gets mad when we break his rules. A lot of people think that. Uh, question for you. God said, "Thou shalt not kill." Suppose God said, "Thou shalt kill." First of all, could God ever say that? No. It's I mean, we'll get, this is getting ahead into the moral theology class, which you'll have in a month or two. Um, but what God commands is, is, is based on, on the logic and the reason and the reality of who God is. Okay? So, so sin isn't just breaking a rule as though God makes up arbitrary rules and just kind of flippantly one day decided, you know, I think I'm against adultery today, so I'm going to make up a commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's not a rule. If you think that a sin is a breaking rule, you'll never be sorry for sin. You'll never understand. Because you're never sorry for breaking a rule. What's the posted speed limit outside in front of the church? 45? Anybody go 46? Did you heave over the steering wheel when you pulled up into the parking lot and weep for sorrow? No. Because nobody's sad for breaking a rule, right? You're only sad for what? Hurting a person. And that's what sin does. Sin doesn't break rules. Sin harms relationships. Now, this is one of the most important things to understand about sin. The reason sin is harmful is that it harms or destroys your relationships. Now, when I've got this outlined on your notes, you have three basic relationships. If you've thought about this or not, think about it now. There's a relationship you have with God. There's a relationship we have with other people. And in a sense, there's a relationship you have with yourself. Sin damages or breaks All three. Let's look. Okay? First of all, your relationship with God. The more you sin, the more distant God seems to be. That's not true, of course. Just like in the Adam and Eve story. Who's the one who ran away? God or Adam and Eve? They're the ones who ran away and hid. Right? When we sin, almost immediately we begin to think that God has gone away from us. Um... But it's not true. It harms our relationships. Now, I've already hinted at this too, but before there was sin, uh, we saw God as a loving father. After sin, we, got, we see God as a taskmaster, we see him as a tyrant, someone who keeps good things from us. Why do we commit sin? Because at some level, we think that this commandment is, that, that we want to break is holding us back from something good, that a little bit of sin would be really good for us, so we kind of break the commandment. Makes sense? You know, Just a little tiny, little tiny taste of adultery probably be pretty good for me, so I think I'm going to go ahead and do it, even though God had a commandment. But implied in that is this idea that God's commandments are keeping us from happiness. That's a consequence of sin. It never used to be that way. I'll give you a parallel case. The owner's manual in your car tells you exactly what not to put into your gas tank would you ever say, well, maybe a little bit of blackstrap molasses in my gas tank would be a good thing for my powertrain? You'd never think that, right? You know it's going to cause harm. If you can think of God's commandments as being like the owner's manual of the soul, if you can think of God's commandments as being that which makes your life run smoothly, you've got a good understanding of of what his commandments really are, and you have a good understanding of how how sin has damaged our relationship with God. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, secondly, this one's the easiest to understand. Sin damages or destroys the relationship we have with other persons. Now this should be as clear as day. Uh, you, you lie, you cheat, you steal. What happens to your trust? Gone. What happens to the bonds that are between two people? Gone. Um, slap somebody across the face relationship, terribly weakened. That's the easiest of all to see. And I've already talked about how all mankind is bound together, um, how there's a communal element to sin. But this is what you might not understand. you have going to stay back on the first page. Not quite done. Not quite done with page one. That's true for every single sin. Now, if I commit a big sin, you know, if I firebomb a shopping mall, everybody knows that breaks down the fabric of society. Clear enough. But I ask you to take this in faith. Every sin breaks down the fabric of society. There's no such thing as a private sin. I remember talking to this man once and he says, That's nothing to do with God. It's just it's just it's just just has to do with me. It has everything to do with God, everything to do with others. Sometimes people don't want to go to confession. A lot of times people don't want to go to confession. And they'll say things like, well, it's not the priest's business, not anybody else's business, it's just between me and God. No sin is ever just between you and God. It always hurts us all. I can't prove that demonstrably, but hopefully you can intuit it from the big example to the smaller. Okay? Um, It's true for every sin. Now, lastly, sin makes you lose your relationship even with yourself. Just meditate on this one if you haven't discovered it to be true. Um, but do you not hate yourself for doing things wrong? You say to yourself, what's the matter with me? Why do I always keep doing the same bad behavior? Why do I always keep going down the same dead end that leads to me to frustration, unhappiness, regret, bitterness? And then when you do the right thing, when you get up when the alarm rings, when you eat a sensible breakfast, when you get to work on time, school on time, whatever it might be, when you fulfill your obligations, when you follow through on commitments, when you keep your promises, even without saying it, there's a certain kind of happiness that just glows from the inside out. Your relationship with yourself is stronger. You have self-respect. Do you see how sin damages or weakens the relationship that you have with yourself? Um, I was going to tell you a story, but we'll save it for confession class. It's about confession. Um, so, what's the price of sin? It's the loss of everything you'd actually value. It costs you your peace of mind. It costs you your relationship with other people, and it costs you your relationship with God. Consider this: relationships are really all you have in life. I mean, if I strip away all your relationships from you and leave you with just your bank account and your possessions, do you not feel terribly empty? What good is it if there's no one to share it with? What good is life if there's no one to love? You're made in God's image. God is a trinity. Trinity is nothing but persons in love relationships with others forever. That's why the only, the only thing in your life that you ever really care about are the love relationships you have with others. That's what sin attacks. That's why God says don't. That's why God says don't. Okay? Um, That's why I say, ultimately, sin comes at the price of your soul. Because when you've lost everything except your possessions, it's your soul that you've lost. Make sense? Okay. And just to reemphasize, sin always harms. Sin never helps. It's against our own nature. It keeps us from finding the fulfillment that we're supposed to find as human beings. God loves us. God knows what he needs. He's got the owner's manual of the soul. Okay. Now, to follow up on a point that I made earlier... Uh, about um, how it deforms God's image in you. Consider this, sin weakens the divine image. Have you ever heard it said that you're made in God's image? Raise your hand if you've heard, I'm made in God's image. Most people have heard that. Do you know what it means? Allow me to tell you. It's very specific. It's not like a vague kind of phrase that you know, like means that you're g- good and valuable. And it has a very specific meaning. To say that you're made in God's image means two things. It means that you have an intellect that can know the truth, and it means you have a will that can freely choose right or wrong. Now no other animal in the world has that. You will never find uh, a a I don't know a, a pack of wild dogs deliberating amongst themselves what's the best way to order their society. They don't have an intellect like we have. Um, you'll I don't know, you'll never find um, uh, an an animal painting a painting about a beautiful sunset for the sheer beauty of it. They don't have the the heart to love and choose it by the way we have. You're different from every other animal on the face of this earth. Hopefully that's clear enough. Some people deny that premise. I think you already know, at least in some instinctive fashion, that that's true. That's what it means that you have a divine image. God has essentially two qualities, and he gave them to you. God is pure knowledge. And so he gave you the capacity to know the truth. And God is pure love, which is freedom. So he gave you the capacity to freely choose love. Does love imply freedom? Yes. If it's forced, is it love? There was a guy in my high school, believe it or not, a girl asked him to prom because certain guys paid the girl to ask him to prom. Once he found out that the only reason she asked was that she got paid, he felt terrible because he thought something that was freely given was not freely given. So God God made you in this image. Now what I'd like to tell you is, and you've got to meditate on this, kind of a big deal. Sin weakens that image. It darkens the intellect. Now that doesn't mean sin makes you dumber, but it does mean that it makes it harder for you to know the difference between right and wrong. Sin weakens the will. That doesn't make you weaker, but it does make it harder for you to choose right next time. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. A student sits in class, never cheated on a test, but in the middle of a test, sees answers from somebody else's test and is oh so tempted to look over and steal those answers, has a little battle within their soul, it's wrong, I shouldn't do this, caves in and writes down answers that they read off the next test. Now, when the next test comes along, isn't it easier to sin the second time? Isn't it harder to understand why it's wrong? That's what I mean when it says it weakens the divine image in you. That's what I mean when I say sin destroys, weakens what God created. So you'll find people of mac- of massive monstrous evil. Hitlers and Stalins and Mussolinis and these really bad people. How'd they get that way? You think little baby Hitler was bad from birth? No. How did he get that way? One choice at a time. Every choice made the next choice easier. Every choice made the next choice easier. These monstrously evil people got that way one choice at a time. And what happened? It became harder for them to choose what's right and harder for them to understand why it was ever wrong in the first place. What happened to the divine image, the intellect and the will in them? It was tarnished, weakened or even destroyed, depending on how bad they were. Makes sense? Here's one of the most extreme examples. Everybody's heard of the Nuremberg Trials, 1946, war crimes. They're showing conveyor belts full of corpses going, sending people into mass graves. And they're accusing Hermann Göring, one of the head Nazis, of doing that. And he literally turned to his attorney with this video of corpses going on a conveyor belt into a mass grave and said to his attorney, and what's wrong with that? How did he get that way? One choice at a time. Okay, that's when the divine image, but it happens to us very small, very, but when you choose the right thing, it's the opposite. Okay, so it makes sense? Now, <laughs> here's, <coughs> here's another distinction <coughs> material sin versus formal sin. What we're really talking about here is formal sin, but there is such a thing as material sin. Material sin is what you do something wrong out of ignorance when you don't know that it's wrong. Uh, a little child, for example, he scribbles on the wall with a crayon, makes a terrible mess. Is it a disorder? Is it a wrong? It's not a moral wrong. It's not like he chose wrong, but would something wrong happen? Yeah. Um, oh, here's a personal story. You'll love this. When I was very young, I played with the emergency brake on my mother's car. Unleashed the emergency brake. Car rolled down the hill, across a busy street, slammed into the neighbor's fence and into their backyard. And did I do a moral wrong as a three-year-old? No, I didn't know what I was doing. But did wrong occur? Yes. That's what we call material sin. Was anyone like personally at, I mean, don't, don't get into the issue of why the car was unlocked or whatever, but was anyone personally at fault for it? No. But was harm done? Yes. Okay, now please understand this. When the church says something is sin, it's a sin that is to say it causes harm whether you know it or not. If someone tells you something is harmful, they're doing you a good service. You say, well, I don't believe adultery is harmful. I don't care what you believe. It's still harmful. Parallel case. I don't care what you think about McDonald's food. It's unhealthy. If you don't know it's unhealthy, it doesn't have the same consequence that salad has. Like your, your, your mind doesn't change reality. Okay, so that's what we call a material sin. Something that's wrong, but nobody's at fault. Make sense? That, the only reason I raise the question of material sin Um, is to say that really when the church talks about sin, they're trying to do us a favor. Uh, They're trying to keep us from things that harm, harm us, harm other people. Um, And it also upends this very common idea that if I just have good enough intentions, I can make a bad action into a good action. It doesn't matter how good my intentions were. If I still do something bad, if I release an emergency brake, set a car rolling on a hill, regardless of what I was intending, it's still harmful. So please understand, reality doesn't care what you feel. (laughs) And that's important. That's why we want to conform our minds to what's real. And that means listening to what God had to say. That's material sin. So far, so good. Now to the meat of the matter, this is what sin really is, formal sin. This is when we say that I'm choosing deliberately to do what I know is wrong. Okay, That's formal sin. Now here's the definition, the essence of sin. The desire in the heart to oppose God's will. Understand, I use the word desire deliberately there. If I desire to do wrong, but never get the chance to carry it out, have I still sinned? If I desire and plan and commit adultery, but my car breaks down on the way to the hotel, have I still committed a sin as far as God is concerned? Have I still harmed myself? Have I still harmed my relationship? Yes, 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 and yes. That's why I said the definition of sin is the desire in the heart to oppose God's will. So far, so good. All right. Now, two kinds of sin. And I know there's so much to say here, I'm trying to get it all in, but I think we'll get it all in. Two kinds of sin. Mortal sin, and venial sin. Have you ever heard this distinction before? Raise your hand. Okay, real quickly. Some sin is serious by its very nature and turns you against God and kills your friendship. But some sin doesn't. It weakens your friendship, but it doesn't kill it. Um, just getting ahead of myself now, just a little bit of an overview. Um, if I, I don't know, commit adultery, uh, I have done something to my spouse that breaks our relationship. We've got to go through some kind of a process of repairing that if it can be repaired. But if I know she doesn't like it that I smoke cigars and I smoke a cigar and I know she really doesn't like it, well, I've weakened the relationship, but I haven't broken it. See the difference? There is such a thing as a mortal sin which breaks the relationship with God, kills divine grace. And then there is such a thing as a venial sin that doesn't break the relationship, but it weakens it. Let's, let's, let's examine the difference. Here's a mortal sin. There are three criteria that make up a mortal sin. Okay. First of all, serious matter. Often, but not always, this is defined by the church. church will tell us what's serious matter. Um, And I don't want to get into all the things that can be serious matter, but just understand um, it's serious by its very nature. Uh, Secondly, sufficient reflection. You have to be aware to some degree this is wrong. And thirdly, full consent of the will. Three criteria for mortal sin. Serious matter, sufficient reflection. You have to be aware that you're doing something wrong. Okay, And full consent of the will. Full consent of the will means no one pressured you into it. No one held a gun to your back. Um, you can even be, your, your will can even be compromised by the force of habit uh, or other forces. Here's a simple example. Um, you, you could have been an explorer in the early days of the 18th century and come across the island of Tonga, which is now an, a Micronesian island nation somewhere in the South Pacific, And come across the island of Tonga where once upon a time people were headhunters. And there was some kind of their spirituality of lopping off people's heads and shrinking them. It was wrong. Um, No one ever told them it was wrong. People were raised for generations and generations hunting heads. That might have been something of a a force to overcome that societal uh, approval of it. Okay, But for a sin to be mortal, it has to be full consent of the will. It's serious. I have a moment to think about it, and there's no one or nothing forcing me, and I freely choose it. That kills your relationship with God. you got to go to confession after that. you got to make up for what you've broken. Make sense? Okay. Um, it expels God's grace. It's a grave violation of God's law. Now, please understand, venial sin is everything else. God's life lives, but it's wounded, it's weakened, it's darkened. What people don't often understand is these are different by nature, not just by degree. In other words, all the venial sins in the world don't add up to a mortal sin. I could smoke a cigar every evening and my wife could really be upset with me. I don't smoke cigars and I don't have a wife, don't worry. Okay, Just an example. But she's not going to divorce me. First, I know a man, he put his shoes in the middle of the floor every night. Wife wanted his shoes in the closet to the side. And he's like, dag nabbit, I'm fully grown and I'm putting my shoes wherever I dag nabbit want. Their relationship was not as warm and wonderful as it should have been. But they didn't get divorced over it, okay? Different in nature, not just, not just in number. Make sense? Okay. Here's a, a good example that I like of venial sin. It comes from St. Uh, Francis de Sales. He said, imagine a jar of crystal clear pure honey. Now imagine a spider web in that jar of crystal clear pure honey. It's greatly damaged your honey, isn't it? It really, really turns you off from the honey. But if you worked at it, you could take that thing, and the rest of the honey would be fine. Spider web in the honey is like venial sin. Make sense? Okay. Um, Now, again, distinctions, distinctions. You might have heard this before, and this is the last thing we're going to say about sin. You might have heard of capital sins, or what they call deadly sins, or cardinal sins. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of these before. Seven deadly sins, seven, okay. Please understand, these are not the worst sins in the world. They are rather elements. The seven capital sins are like the seven elements. Every sin reduces to one of these seven, okay? That's why they're called capital from the Latin word caput, which means head. Every sin is one of these. They are pride, avarice, lust, anger, gluttony, envy, and sloth. Let's real briefly look at each one, okay? Pride. Pride is not a warm feeling of loyalty to your school. Pride is not a warm feeling of loyalty to your country. Pride is not a sense of accomplishment and a job well done. Pride is the desire to vaunt yourself over somebody else. And don't we all know what that feels like? Maybe you, co- maybe you took a vacation, you come back and you tell a story about your vacation and somebody else says, oh, that's nothing. And then they tell a story is better than your story. <laughs> what did they just do? They vaunted themselves over you. And don't you hate it when that happens? Um, I just got a brand new Corvette. I, I got a brand new Ferrari. Right? Um, you'd like to say, I was an astronaut on Apollo 17. I, I drove on the moon. Right? Nobody can top that. But pride, it's the desire to vaunt yourself over other people. Ultimately, even to vaunt yourself over God. That's the sin of pride. Make sense? Okay. Again, this is super brief. Avarice, greed. Everybody knows avarice. Theft, fraud, stinginess. Injustice, not giving to someone what's their due. Um, Could you be avaricious by wasting time at work? Yes, you could. You could be in a sense stealing, right? It's kind of theft. Lust, misuse of sexuality. I could go on and on about this. Um, God gave us sexuality for a purpose. That purpose is procreative. That purpose is inseparable from matrimony. Lust is when you misuse it. Uh, it's essentially when you take this, which is a covenant between a man and a woman. And you say, the, the, the heck with the covenant. I just want what I want. And another person is utilized as a means to an end. What's the end? My pleasure. That's why it's a sin. Make sense? Okay. Anger. Real simple understanding of anger. Anger, by the way, do you, anger is not always a sin. Do you know that? There's justifiable anger. Here's a simple definition of anger. Anger is the reaction you have when something gets in the way of a justice you're trying to accomplish. Now, most times that's a sin. Sometimes it's not. It depends on how good is the thing you're trying to accomplish. For example, what if someone is abusing your child? In in fury and, and rage, you go and pull the child away from the abuser. And that's anger. Something's getting in the way of the justice that should be going on. That's not a sin, righteous but there's righteous anger. But but most of our anger is not righteous anger, is it? Most of our anger is getting mad when someone won't move fast enough after a light turns green. I saw a man yell at a woman at a Wendy's restaurant because he didn't because she gave him ketchup on his burger, and he specifically said no ketchup. You know, oh the humanity! Right? Um, most anger is misplaced rage. And it could also be take the effect of gossip and slander. Gluttony. This one's harder for people to understand. Uh, I think the simplest way to understand gluttony, which is a lack of self-control, or essentially a misuse of food, is when you look comically at a character like, say, a Homer Simpson. Isn't there something at fault with the way he eats donuts? See what I mean? Food is meant for a purpose. The purpose... Among them is nutrition, there's a certain communal purpose, certain celebratory purpose, there's a certain enjoyment purpose, all these things. Um, but when all you just want to do is eat for eating's sake, um, that's ultimately the gateway, the, the gateway drug uh, to all of your lacks of self-control. I, I could go off on a tangent on this, but one of the reasons why we give up stuff for Lent as Catholics Is because the act of giving up something is usually food. And that act teaches you discipline across many areas of your life. So it's not the worst thing in the world. Please don't misunderstand, but it's an element. It's one of the seven elements, gluttony is. Envy. Envy. Very simple. Envy is sadness at the good fortune of somebody else. Now, just for fun, this is not the same thing as jealousy. Envy is person-centered. Jealousy is thing-centered. For example, if Joe at the office wins a trip to Hawaii and you immediately think, dag nabbit, why don't good things ever happen to me? Why can't I go to Hawaii? You are guilty of jealousy because it's not about Joe at the office. It's about the trip, right? But if Joe at the office wins a trip to Hawaii and suddenly you hate Joe, that's envy. See the difference? Mm -hmm. my my friend got into my first choice college and I didn't. And now they're not my friend anymore. Envy or jealousy? Envy. See how that's the sin? Jealousy is thing centered. It's actually not really quite in the same category. That's just a little distinction just for fun. And sloth, neglect of your duty. Um, Skipping church, not not praying, not taking care of your health. Those are the seven capital sins. Now, got a little bit of time left to go over grace. Uh, We can give grace less time. Because it's a lot harder to define. Sin is much easier to define than grace. Uh, Grace requires a little bit more prayer, thought, reflection on your part. But here's what grace is. The definition of grace is the life of God in your soul. Okay. Everybody have a soul? What is your soul? Now, real briefly, I'll give you a definition of what your soul is. Your soul is not material, is it? I couldn't take you into an operating room, break out a scalpel, and remove your soul. No, your soul is not material. Your soul is spiritual. Your soul is your spirit. Simplest definition of a soul is this. Go to a funeral home, look in the casket, ask yourself, what's missing? Answer, the soul, the life, the personality, the memory, the love, everything. Now, can your soul have bad qualities too? Can it have cowardice as well as courage? Yes. Can it have dishonesty as well as honesty? Yes. Grace is God's life in your soul. It's there for you to accept or not to accept. Okay. Um, But grace is God's life in your soul. Ultimately, that's the life of charity. It's the behavior that we admire in other people. When we see acts of sacrifice, it's a soul that's alive with God's life, alive with grace acts the way Jesus would act. What would a soul without very much of God's life act like? Be marked by one quality above all else, selfishness. A selfish person would ultimately act uh, as the way they do because they lack grace, because they lack God's life, okay? Now, grace, I got a little etymology here for you just for fun, Um, God gives it freely The word gratia is a Latin word for free. It's freely given away. The the Greek word is beauty. And my favorite definition of grace is the beauty of God given away for free. Now, grace is guaranteed in sacraments. When we talk about sacraments, we're going to talk about this. The word sacrament means promise. The word sacrament means pledge. What's pledged? God's grace is pledged. Every time a sacrament is offered, is grace offered? Yes, is grace always received? That depends on you. But I guarantee you it's offered. And it's given in prayer too. Um, But with the sacrament, you've got a promise. So what does grace do? Well, the simple way of talking about grace is it's the undoing of sin. If sin weakens your intellect and will, grace enlightens and strengthens them. If sin destroys your relationships, turns you in on yourself... Grace restores your relationships, turns you outward to God and others. So a question for you. Can people who have done great wrong, can they change? Yeah. They can. They always are free to change. That power by which they change is God's grace. If they act on it, they can turn their whole life around, right? They can turn their whole life around. So grace is, you have to hold questions until I'm done, okay? Otherwise, we'll be on forever. Wait, just wait, wait until I'm done. Um, but but grace is the undoing of sin. If sin turns you in on, on, on yourself and turns you away from God and others, sin grace restores those relationships. Okay, now, once again, distinctions. Two main kinds of grace. Sanctifying grace and actual grace. Sanctifying grace, in a sense, is the easiest state and the hardest to understand. Sanctifying grace is the state of being redeemed. Right? It's the fact that God is given you his own life. The fact that you've been baptized and he's given you his own life. Um, But it's also the depth of your friendship with God. Sanctifying grace is given in baptism. Sanctifying grace is strengthened with each sacrament. Let me tell you a simple way to understand sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace is the depth of your friendship with God. So let me ask you a question. Rhetorically, you don't have to answer me. But you all would say, I'm a friend of God, yes? Suppose I could turn that around and ask God how much of a friend you really are. How deep does that friendship run? Well, you feel a lot more comfortable answering from your side. But if you were to find out now, God, he's going to give you a report card on how deep he thinks your friendship is with him. You're like, oh, wait a minute. What does God think? How God thinks how deep your friendship is, is your level of sanctifying grace. It's the depth of your friendship with God. Okay. Comes for the first time to you in baptism, strengthened with every sacrament, deepened with every sacrament. Um, but that's sanctifying grace. Okay. Okay. Okay, now, actual grace. This is far more interesting. Actual grace. Actual grace. I want to use this term make sure this is clear. I don't mean like as opposed to theoretical grace. Um, actual grace is the grace for an action. And, and it looks like this. It's God's strength in a moment for something that's beyond your power. You know how it feels. Maybe you think to yourself that you want to forgive an enemy. And suddenly this little poof of inspiration comes to you and you can find the words and you can... That is an actual grace that you have responded to. Have you ever had that inspiration in a moment but not acted on it? I think we all know what that feels like. Here's one of my favorite quotations, Archbishop Fulton Sheen. He says, examine your life and you'll find this to be true. You have more temptations to be good than you have to be bad. What's he describing? Actual grace. In other words, you have more ideas for good that you can do than you have ideas for wrong that you can do. But those ideas for good... Those are offers, they're actual grace. Okay? It can set your intellect in motion, it can set your will in motion without becoming a permanent quality of either. An image, wind for a sailboat. A puff of wind comes along, it's an opportunity. It comes and it goes. When you respond to actual graces, you get more of them. When you reject them, you get fewer of them. Jesus once said, Whoever has will be given more until he becomes rich. Whoever has not will lose what little he has. This is what he's talking about. Give you an example. Um, Let's talk about a seventh grade boy who has a crush on a seventh grade girl. And boy, does he want to get her attention. He acts like a class clown to try to get her attention. Sound familiar? Tries to be a great sports star on the basketball court to get her attention. Does all kinds of things to get her attention. If he gets her attention, he gives her even more attention. And even more attention. Why? Because he wants a relationship. God's like that with us. He gives you actual grace after actual grace after actual grace. If you reject them, what happens? He respects your will. He starts to back off. If you accept them, what happens? He gives you even more. Understand, this is a relationship we're in. This isn't just a study. Okay, That's what an actual grace is. This relationship you have with God grows or weakens by a response to actual graces. Okay, In everything, God always acts first. God invites we always respond. The whole of the Christian life is a response to God's grace. And you could say this: every good we do, even the idea to do good, is itself God's initiative. Is itself a grace. Now, just at the very end here, for your own meditation's sake, um, from the Saint Paul's letter to the Galatians, I've got signs that you're lacking in grace, or signs that you're filled with grace. You can take about those. You can take a look at those. Pray about those. Um, but uh, that pretty much brings us to the end here. So um, how about now we could just politely have a moment or two for questions, sound good?